0: TED Audio Collective. Hi, TED Talks Daily listeners. I'm your host, Elise Hugh. Today, you're about to hear something a little different. This week, we're doing a live interview series called TED Connects Community and Hope. They are timely conversations with TED speakers around the pandemic we're all struggling through right now. Today's conversation features sleep scientist, professor, and author Matt Walker. He's in conversation with head of TED, Chris Anderson. Their back and forth is great. It gets at all kinds of interesting nuggets like the link between sleep and your immunity, how poor sleep triggers stress eating, guilty, and hacks if you've had a rough night. Speaking of you, we want to hear your input. So let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcasts at TED.com. Odoo, modern management made simple. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like electric vehicles, renewable energy, water sustainability, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com thematic investing.
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night.
2: I'm good, Chris. And
1: how are you doing? And thank you so much for having me on.
2: Well, uh, thank you. It's very good to have you here. I mean, I guess I guess that's going to be the first question on top of people's minds is, you know, is there a case that sleep matters now more than ever? I think, firstly, it's important for me to to
1: not necessarily feed into people's anxiety regarding sleep. I know, as you mentioned, that sleep is difficult for some people when anxiety is high. And of course, that's never more so present. So what I would say is that if anything that we're talking about feels as though it's a trigger, feel free just to come back at a time that feels better in terms of that anxiety level. In terms of sleep and COVID-19, right now we don't necessarily have any evidence to suggest that there is some kind of a link between those two. But certainly what we know is that there is a very intimate relationship between your sleep health and your immune health. Um, There was a study some years ago that demonstrated that individuals who reported getting um, less than seven hours of sleep had almost a threefold increased likelihood of becoming infected by the rhinovirus, a common cold, relative to those who were getting eight hours of sleep or more. But I think perhaps one of the most striking results in this relationship was a study where they demonstrated if you're not getting sufficient sleep in the week before you get your flu shot, you produce less than 50% of the normal antibody response, therefore rendering that vaccination significantly less effective. So I think particularly actually on that last point, at some point we will develop a vaccine for COVID-19. And then the question becomes, is the same thing true? If you're not getting the sleep that you need in the week before you get your COVID shot, will that immunization become significantly less effective? I actually think that's
2: an important question that we will need to answer in the future. Okay, so no specific evidence, how could there be, this is a fairly, this is a new threat to humanity. But given that in a, in a way, the you know, if, if someone gets infected, there follows this sort of epic battle between a virus and their immune system. It's, it's obvious common sense to give your immune system every shot it can, and uh, in many other cases, sleep is known to do that. Let, let's, let's spend a bit more time thinking about the different ways that sleep can be really helpful now, because paradoxically, I and mean, we actually, many of us, have, in theory, at any rate, more time to sleep <laughs> than we've ever had, and so, boy, if we could put that to use, how else, how else could it help us just during our waking day and the things that we're having to focus on now?
1: Sleep seems to provide a benefit to many of the operations of the mind. And perhaps I'll just give two examples within the mind. Sleep is essentially incredibly beneficial for is learning memory and even creativity. And when it comes to memory, sleep is important in perhaps at least three ways. Firstly, we know that you need sleep before learning to actually prepare your brain um, a little bit like um, a dry sponge ready to initially absorb new memories and lay down those new memory traces. But that's not enough. You not only need sleep before learning to imprint those memories into the brain, you also need sleep after learning to essentially cement those new memories into the neural architecture of the brain so that you don't forget. In fact, sleep almost performs a file transfer mechanism where it takes memories and shifts them from a sort of a short-term vulnerable reservoir to a more permanent long-term storage site within the brain. And that's what we used to think that sleep was beneficial for, um, taking individual memories and holding onto them, as it were, future-proofing that information. But we've since discovered that sleep is actually much more intelligent than that. Sleep will actually take new memories and start to integrate and associate them with pre-existing stores of information. So it's almost a little bit like memory alchemy at night so that you wake up the next day with a revised mind-wide web of associations. And that leads to remarkable states of creativity. And there's lots of good examples for this. Studies in the laboratory showing that um, sleep can inspire almost a threefold increase um, in creative insights. Um, and it's probably the reason that you know you've you've never been told to stay awake on a problem, but instead you're you're told to sleep on a problem. And I think that phrase seems to exist in almost every language that I've inquired about to date, which means that this creative benefit of sleep transcends cultural boundaries. It's common across the globe. So there's a a lovely study done by some German researchers a couple of years ago. And the way that they did this, they gave people a series of problems that had a hidden embedded rule into it. And they never told them about that rule. But through exposure, perhaps gradually you can divine that hidden insight that is sort of locked into that problem. And then they bring them back and then they test them at some point later to see if the light bulb moment has gone on for those individuals and they've divined that sort of creative solution, that hidden rule. And you can do that after being awake or you can do that after being asleep. And that's how they can start to tease apart. Is it just time that the brain needs for creativity? Is it time awake or instead? Is it time asleep? And it was time asleep that seemed to gift the brain this sort of creative genius ability. It's not just creativity, but sleep can also, I think, change our emotional and mood state, sort of feeling better the next day. And that's what we're now starting to learn is is another function of sleep for the mind, that sleep um, provides almost a form of overnight therapy, that sleep will take those difficult, stressful, um, situations or problems. And sleep almost acts like a nocturnal soothing balm, just sort of taking the sharp edges off our emotional experiences so that we come back the next day and we don't feel as challenged or as triggered by those events anymore. Sleep, I think we're learning, performs um, a form of emotional first aid, as it were. It's part of the, the reason that we're finding that sleep is so tied into psychiatric disorders and mental health conditions. In the past 20 years, for example, we've not been able to discover a single psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. So I think sleep has a very powerful story to tell in our understanding and probably treatment of um, serious mental illness.
2: I mean, there's another issue that I suspect a lot of people are wrestling with right now is that a lot of people's response to being isolated and feeling a bit stressed is to imagine more and more delicious things to eat and cook as <laughs> people we, we go to want <laughs> food. I think you've argued that sleep has a role to play in in the battle against gaining weight. It does. We know how this mechanism plays
1: out where if we're not sleeping well, we can start to gain weight. The first piece of evidence concerns hormones and two specific hormones that control our hunger levels. Those two hormones are called leptin and ghrelin. And I often say that they, they almost sound like hobbits, but I promise you they're not. Now, leptin, when it's released, is the signal to your brain to say you're full, you're satiated, you don't want to eat anymore. Whereas ghrelin does the opposite. It says you're not full, you're not satisfied with your food, you should eat more. And when we start to undersleep, those two hormones go in opposite directions. We lose the signal that says you're full and you're satisfied with your meal, which is leptin, but we increase the hormone that says, no, you're actually hungry. And so as a consequence, people who are underslept can start to eat uh, somewhere between two to 400 extra calories per day when you look at some of these studies. It's not, by the way, just that you start to eat more. It's also that when you are underslept, your preference for different food groups actually shift. And so you start to desire more heavy hitting carbohydrates and more simple processed sugary foods rather than those more healthy macro ingredients, which also sort of sets you on a path towards uh, a more what we call obesogenic profile. And we did a study uh, a couple of years ago where we gave people a good night of sleep or we kept them awake for a night. And then we placed them inside an MRI scanner and we showed them different types of food groups, um, things that were very desirable, ice cream, chocolate, et cetera, or um, sort of healthy leafy greens. And what we found is that when people were not getting the sleep that they needed, the sort of the deep hedonic centers of the brain were actually ramped up in response desire to desirable foods and they started to want those more unhealthy foods. And this in part was because the the frontal lobe in their brain, which almost acts like this um, sort of CEO of the brain regulating and controlling our impulses and our, our emotions, that was actually switched off by a lack of sleep. But I think we can think of that more positively and say perhaps sleep can actually be a tool in your box that can enable you to um, manage your weight more efficiently and correctly.
2: It's also interesting to me, like one of the key symptoms of this virus is to make people incredibly tired, like a a fever and incredibly tired. And like, it's striking to me that in principle, we we see those things as as these awful things that happen, that those are the virus's weapons. Actually, in a way they're not right. They're our body's weapons to try to beat the virus. And with sleep, should, should we just view, like if, you, if you're having symptoms and you're feeling really tired, does it help at all to say, this isn't the bug, this is me, and to listen to your body and to, and to, just, and to get all the sleep you damn well can?
1: I think it's a beautiful example, and it, it's another demonstration of that relationship that we spoke about. I think everyone knows that when you get sick or you get a common cold, what you really want to do is just curl up in bed and, and sort of sleep sleep it off. It's that your immune system is actually co-opting and bringing sleep into the equation to help fight that infection because sleep is so powerful in that regard.
2: So given all these reasons why we need more sleep now than ever, perhaps, talk to us about how how to get it. What What are your top tips on how someone can get a really great night's sleep? Yeah, I think
1: beyond the typical what we call sleep hygiene factors such as controlling your light in the evening, making uh, your room a cool place, also being mindful of caffeine and alcohol. So firstly, if you're coming off a bad night of sleep, the first thing, and this may sound counterintuitive, is not to sleep in the next day. Resist the urge to sleep in. Wake up at your normal time. Firstly, your body um, has a 24-hour clock, and it expects regularity and it thrives best on regularity and if you start to change your wake up time you will confuse that 24 hour clock the other reason is that if you sleep in late you're probably not going to feel sleepy until later that following evening the second piece of advice there relates to that don't necessarily go to bed any earlier than you would otherwise because sometimes if you do that even if you're feeling quite sleepy You can then lie in bed and you can start to toss and turn. So the final piece of advice after a bad night of sleep um, is resist the urge to nap during the day. Now, if you are a healthy, good sleeper and you can nap regularly, then naps are just fine. But if you are struggling with sleep and have had a bad night of sleep, try not to nap, especially late in the afternoon because you can think of naps in that situation, almost like snacking before a main meal. If you have a snack, you're not going to have the same appetite to try and sort of consume that main meal. What to do if you are still struggling um, with sleep? I think the first thing is if you're in bed and you've been awake for let's say 20 or 30 minutes, uh, perhaps the advice is take a break. Stop trying to fight sleep because typically the harder that we um, try to force ourselves to sleep, the more stressed and anxious that we become and the further that we push sleep away from us. You shouldn't um, just get out of bed Go and do something different in dim light. Read a book, listen to a podcast, only return to bed when you're sleepy. And that way you'll relearn the association that your bed is the place of sleep. Understand that the bed is the place where you always sleep and you have confidence in sleeping. The last two pieces of advice have a wind down routine. I think many of us have this idea that sleep perhaps should be like a light switch that we get into bed and we can just go from a one to a zero, that it's a binary, that we can just switch off and instantly fall asleep. Sleep typically is not like that. Sleep is much more like trying to land a plane, that you've got to gradually give it time to descend down onto that terra firma of good sleep. And the faster that you're going uh, in terms of the mind, the longer that you need to give um, the mind to sort of gradually come back down into sleep. Meditation is useful. Also taking a hot bath or a shower, having some kind of ritual. And that's useful by the way, not just because a um, a hot bath will relax you, but we also have this science in sleep called the warm bath effect, where as you come out of the bath, all of the blood has come to the surface of your skin. And when you get out, you radiate all of the heat out of your body. So your core body temperature actually drops. And that's actually good for sleep. It helps you fall asleep faster and stay asleep and more deeply. The last quick point I would make if you are struggling with sleep, and it's a simple tip, but it can be effective. Remove all clock faces from the bedroom. Um, it's fine to have an alarm clock, but try to take away any information about time, because if you're struggling with sleep, Um, knowing that it's 2.15 a.m. or 4 a.m., it's not going to help you. So remove those from the bedroom. The last thing I would note, by the way, is that if these things are not working well for you, um, this is a tip from a wonderful sleep clinician called Michael Grandner, that if these things aren't working for you, it could be that you have an underlying sleep disorder.
2: Talk a bit, Matt, about just uh, the role of screens uh, on sleep. And like so many people, the news is so interesting right now. Your instinct is to take your phone or whatever to, to, to your bedside, you know, check it, check out the news last thing at night, whatever. Is there evidence about this, about whether that's advisable or not?
1: So I think there is a, a feeling in the sleep science community, of course, that the invasion of technology into the bedroom hasn't necessarily been a good thing. Firstly, there is a concern about the blue light that comes from some of these devices. And that blue light will typically stamp the brakes on the release of a hormone that we call melatonin. And melatonin is a hormone that signals to your brain and your body that it's nighttime, that it's darkness. And we need that signal of darkness to enable the healthy timing of our sleep. And in some ways we are a dark deprived society in this modern era. But if you look at the evidence, there is some evidence that those screens can actually change our sleep patterns. But more recently, I think that that's been debated. What I do think perhaps is the greater impact of technology is less so the blue light coming from these devices, but more so the the activation, the physiological activation that these devices trigger. And We know firstly that um, if you're using your phone, it can cause something called sleep procrastination. Uh, It it, is actually a thing where you get into bed, you are tired, you're sleepy, you could easily fall asleep, but you think, well, I'll just check Facebook one last time, or I'll just send that quick tweet and I'll just go online and order a few of those things that I need. The other thing that these devices can do though is on the back end of sleep, if we bring those devices into the bedroom, A lot of us, I think the first thing that we do when we wake up in the morning is we swipe right, and then all of a sudden, this sort of tsunami of anxiety comes flooding in. And that trains our brain to essentially expect that sort of stress every single morning. It's what we call anticipatory anxiety. So if you can, a good piece of advice is, try not to check your phone for, let's say, just the first five minutes of the day see if you can just sort of hold off and you can push that distance of anxiety a little bit further so you don't train your brain to think okay every night when i go to bed the first thing i'm going to be doing is receiving
2: anxiety in the morning you mentioned melatonin some people swear by it as a natural sleep remedy do you recommend its use for some people for anyone
1: well Melatonin isn't actually a sleep-inducing chemical, at least so far, looking at the data. It's a a sleep-timing hormone, so it helps us regulate when the brain is told to go to sleep. So think of melatonin, if you were to consider, let's say, the 100-meter race at the Olympics, melatonin is the starting official that sort of begins the gun that starts the great sleep race, But that starting official with the sort of the starting pistol, they don't participate in the sleep race itself. That's a different set of chemicals. So if you're transitioning between different time zones, that's certainly when melatonin can be useful to help sort of give the brain the signal back of when it should be night and day. For most people, though, melatonin isn't necessarily efficacious for improving their sleep. As we get older, the the amount of melatonin that we start to release does actually decrease in total across the night. And that's where I think some of the evidence is actually interesting. It does seem to provide a benefit. The one thing I would note is, at least here in America, one has to be a little bit careful because melatonin is not regulated by the FDA. And because it's over-the-counter, there was a study that looked at different brands, different sort of vendors of melatonin. And what they found is that relative to what it said on the bottle, there was somewhere between 80% less or almost 460% more melatonin relative to what was suggested. So I think one needs to be a little bit careful for that.
2: What about any other sort of, quote, natural sleep aids from, I don't know, chamomile tea to alcohol, any, any other suggestions? <laughs> So for chamomile tea, we don't have
1: any good evidence people have looked at this um, and it doesn't seem to necessarily benefit. There may be some ingredients in chamomile that, that could have a benefit, but right now, no really good strong evidence that at least I've seen. You mentioned alcohol, um, and I'm glad you did because alcohol is perhaps the most used sleep aid rather relative to at least um, prescription sleep aids And it's very natural that people have a nightcap and they'll say, it really helps me um, fall asleep faster. Unfortunately, alcohol is the enemy of sleep and alcohol will hurt your sleep in at least three different ways. Firstly, alcohol is a class of drugs that we call the sedatives and sedation is not sleep. But when we have a drink in the evening or a couple of drinks, we mistake the former for the latter. And alcohol will actually simply just numb the cortex, so you're just sedating yourself. And if I were to look at the electrical signature of your sleep, when you've had a normal healthy night of sleep, and compare it to when you've had alcohol. It's not the same. It's a different electrical profile. The other two um, dangers regarding alcohol and sleep is that firstly, even if you think you fall asleep faster, you typically will wake up many more times throughout the night what we call sleep fragmentation. So you wake up the next day and you don't feel as restored by your sleep because your duration of sleep, the quantity of sleep that you've had may be quite similar, but the quality of that sleep in terms of its continuity is actually significantly worse. The final thing about alcohol is that it's actually very good at blocking your dream sleep, what we call your rapid eye movement sleep. And we know that REM sleep is important for a number of different functions, including mental health and um, your emotional stability.
2: And would you make the same comments about sleeping pills? Is that sedation not real sleep inducing?
1: It is. um, That is the case. The um, sleeping pills typically that are prescribed right now are a class of drugs that, in fact, we call the sedative hypnotics. They act on the same receptor in the brain that alcohol does now the way that they sort of stimulate and tickle that receptor, as it were, is a little bit different. But in general, that's what they're doing too. They're trying to sort of downscale the activity in your cortex, sort of knock out your cortex, as it were. That sleep, if you look at the electrical profile is not the same as normal naturalistic sleep. Matt, how much sleep should people actually have? Is there a prescribed hour number? So currently, the recommendation is for people to get somewhere between seven to nine hours of sleep. And and there certainly is a range. It's not necessarily a one size fits all. I think the CDC suggests that there is a minimum of seven hours uh, in terms of a requirement. But again, it's going to be different for different people. There are outliers. And in fact, there's been some recent work looking at um, what we call these short sleepers. And there are specific genes, there are a couple of genes, in fact, that have now been discovered that seem to be related to just innate short sleepers, people who sleep somewhere between five to six hours a night. So we definitely know that there is a very small select proportion of the population that is a short sleeper. Of course, when I say that, many people say, well, oh, I, I think I'm, I'm probably one of those. But statistically, the likelihood is, is perhaps quite low, if that's, uh, if
2: that's helpful. This is actually a paradox, Matt, in that some of your findings are so, you know, powerful on the, the, the potential risks to us of not enough sleep. Uh, we haven't had time to talk about this yet. But You talk about risk of Alzheimer's, you know, risk of many other things can go up, risk of heart disease and so forth so that people could literally lie awake worrying about what they just heard from Matt Walker. Like how, yeah. you yourself have sometimes done that, right? You've, you've had these new, you know, discoveries and have woken up in the night and, and been worried about the fact that not only what you discovered, but I am awake now and this may be affecting me. Is, is, does that happen? Yeah, it
1: does. You know, and firstly, I'm no sort of cardboard cutout of sleep perfection. I've struggled with bouts of insomnia during my life. And I'm probably the worst of all individuals knowing what I know, you know, I'm sitting there, as you mentioned, and I'm wide awake and I'm thinking, well, you know, my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not shutting down. I'm not releasing, um, you know, this specific sleep chemical. So I am very, I'm very thoughtful about that and how you give a message of the importance of sleep, understanding that it could be triggering. And I think, You know, some of the information that can be given in the talk or in the book could almost be taken as a sort of a sleep or else scenario. And that was never my intent. You know, I think when I was writing the book several years ago now, I think if you looked at the public, you know, I felt as though we were at a stage where we thought of sleep as an inconvenience. And all I really wanted to do was try to perhaps change some of that belief to say sleep is not an inconvenience. Sleep is actually an investment. Sleep is an investment in your physical health as
2: well as your mental health. Matt, it's been a delight to have you here. Thank you so much for this conversation.
0: Take care, everyone.